My shirt is actually yellow. Some of you can't see it. This whole idea of being colorblind, as I've looked at the last few weeks, is very fascinating. How many of you in the room would say you have some degree of colorblindness? Because some are full colorblind and others a sprinkling of you. I learned this week about a small island in the South Pacific called Pingalap. Pingalap. And it's a, it's a unique place because it's actually extremely small. Three square miles. Three square miles. And the highest elevation is 10 feet above sea level. It's out in the South Pacific. But here's why Pingalap is important. Back in the late 1700s, there was what they call the Great Typhoon that hit Pingalap. And it wiped out all the vegetation on the island. And 90% of the population perished in this typhoon. There was less than 20 people who were left. And they had to become fishermen because what they had done before in, in uh, growing and farming was gone. And so they learned fishing. And they waited for the island to regenerate itself. But here's what's interesting is that on Pingalap, they are known as the island of the colorblind. Because in the general population, somewhere between 1 and 30,000 actually are fully colorblind. And on Pingalap, 1 in 12. 1 in 12. And there was something genetically that was passed down when that typhoon happened between those who survived it all the way through. If you, if you can see color fully, it's because you have cones in your retina. And they're able to process those millions of colors. And someone who's colorblind is not able. They don't have those cones. They don't see it. And it also makes them super hypersensitive to light. So if you went to Pingalap, many of the residents there, they actually wear layers of sunglasses because their eyes cannot process the light. And they also obviously can't perceive color. And the sad irony, as you saw in the picture, is that this is, there, there are a few places on earth that are more beautiful or more colorful than this tropical paradise. Everything is green in Pingalap. Not just the foliage and the trees, but the fruit, the variety of bananas. The island is full of brightly colored fruits, papaya and mango and guava. The island is literally bursting with color, but the colorblind Pingalapians, I worked on that this week, the Pingalapians, they cannot... They cannot perceive it at all. They lack the capacity, check it, to see what is all around them. So is it possible to be in close proximity to God and yet as blind to what God is up to as the Pingalopians are to color? As we've gotten into this series in the Gospel of Mark, we've repeated over and over again that the main idea of this entire journey we're taking together is simply this. The closer you get to Jesus, the more your life will change. But there's a principle that applies that we need to be aware of alongside this closeness to Jesus. And it's a principle we use in other contexts, but it, it works here. It's this. Time in erodes awareness of. Time in erodes where stuff. Think of it this way. Have you ever moved out of your house? Like you pulled up a moving truck and you started moving furniture and all that. And you thought your house was clean. Like you thought you were the neatest people on the block. And then you start clearing out rooms and you look and you're like, whoa, like the carpet's filthy and the walls are covered with, with all kinds of stuff. You're like, we're filthy animals in this place, right? It's because time in erodes awareness of. The longer we are in an environment, the closer we are to something the less we start to really see it. And the harder it is to see it 
authentically. And this can be so true in our relationship with Christ. So we want to be close to Christ. We want to see him in full living color. But many of us, the closer we get, we don't begin, we're not seeing those colors and that uniqueness any longer. And as we dive back into Mark today, we're about to learn that what we see and how we see it makes all the difference. So I want to invite you to Mark's gospel again in your Bibles, or if you're in U version, you can go there. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. And as you find your way there, I want to say hello to those of you that are watching online. We have hundreds that watch online every week. Um, those of you that are watching at Microsite, thank you for being with us. Um, they launched the Southeast Campus as you saw Shane's screaming video with his face leaning in on us. I want to let you know something. Last night, Chick-fil-A donated 600 chicken sandwiches to our Southeast Campus. Now, you're... You're not clapping. You're bitter right now. There is no chicken for you. All right? Our communications guy last night is like, we're like debating, like, should we put it out there? I'm like, no, everyone will go for chicken. All right? So they had a great launch. Full. They're in their second service right now as we speak. And so it's awesome what God is doing out there. As we pick up in Mark chapter 6, let me lay some foundation, some context. All right? The first thing that we need to know is this, that the 12 disciples have just returned from being sent out by Jesus for the very first time on their own to like take what they've been learning and what he's been teaching and they're praying for people and they're teaching what Jesus is teaching. They're kind of introducing this, the new kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. And they come back and it's like they went to summer camp. They're like pumped up and they're like, we prayed for people and they actually got healed and we did all this stuff. But they're tired because we all know that changing lives can get tiring. They're weary. And so they come back and Jesus takes them off. And the, the idea is that they're going to get away and they're going to regroup and they're going to rejuvenate a little bit. But we find out that they're, that they're only gone for a little bit of time and the people find them. Not just a few people, but thousands of people find them and they come and they want to hear Jesus teaching again. And the disciples are probably like, ah, right? And they sit up on this grassy hillside, and Jesus begins teaching them again. And the disciples are probably standing in the background like, I thought we were going to a resort, and now you're doing another conference. And we pick up the story in verse 35. Disciples are tired, they're hungry, probably a little grumpy, and the people are getting hungry also. Because it says this, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countrysides, Hampton Inn, Motel 6, Holiday Inn Express. Go to these places and the villages and they can buy themselves something to eat. He had different ideas. He answered, he said, you give them something to eat. Seriously? They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give them to eat? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five loaves, two fish. Now we know from the other accounts of this story that they actually found a little boy who actually had brought his lunch. And that's what they discovered. Now before you think loaves like Costco, remember this is small loaves. In that culture, it was probably about a three or four inch. Think like pita bread, like a small piece of pita bread. And, and when you say fish, it was probably more like a fish spread, almost like sardines, nasty, that, that they would take. And so the, this little boy had his lunch. He was going to spread that fish on top of that, make a little sandwich, and he was going to eat it. And so out of 5,000 men, not including women and children, that's what they had. 
So Jesus, verse 39, directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And the Greek word, the original word that Mark used when he refers to this is the same word they would use for garden plots. So think of it like Mark's saying when you looked out, it was like flowers, like little groups of flowers all over the hillside where all these people were seated. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them... You're not tracking with this because you'd be chuckling a little bit. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, right? And they had to, okay. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And we don't know how this happened. We don't know the answers. I can't answer what went on, what was multiplied. I, I, I don't have the answers. But I know this. They all ate and they were satisfied. They all ate and they were satisfied. And the disciples were sent out to pick up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Five loaves and two fish feed 5,000 men plus women and children. And the disciples are sent out to gather 12 baskets of leftovers. I'm not sure what their mental state was at that point. I'm not sure. I mean, they're like, we're healing people now. Like, we touch people. We knock people over. We do this stuff. And now we're picking up. We're, we're basically bussing tables. And Jesus tells them, listen, I'm going to send the people away. You guys get in the boat, and you go over to the other side of the lake. And once I've got rid of the people, I will, I will meet you on the other side. And they're probably like, for sure, grateful. We're out of here. And so they go out into the middle of the lake, and it says in verse 47 that later that night the boat was in the middle of the lake, and Jesus, he was alone on the land. So he's looking, he's watching them. And he saw the disciples, and they're straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. If you're not awake, let's check ourselves. We fed 5,000 plus with a little bit, and now... We're walking on the lake, all right? We're walking. But what's interesting is it says he was about to pass by them. In other words, they're so into what they're doing. They're straining. The wind is blowing. That here's this thing crazy happening next to them, and they don't even see it. Their eyes aren't even seeing it. And when they finally do, they're confused. Because it says when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because all, they all saw him, and they were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and he said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then he climbs into the boat with them and the wind dies down. Can you picture that? Let me get in the boat. It climbs in the boat and they're completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves and then these are the four words we are going to park on today. It says this, their hearts were what? Their hearts were hardened. They are rowing. It's dark. It's probably cold. It's windy. They're tired. They're not thrilled. They're in the middle of the lake grinding for hours. They're getting more and more irritated, more and more hardness of heart. They had just collected leftovers and now they're rowing for hours collecting calluses. When they had signed up to follow Jesus, their thoughts weren't that they would follow him in the middle of the night into the middle of a lake. But that's where they were. And there's two things that we immediately need to notice about the disciples. 
The first one is this. They had blurry eyes. They weren't sure what they were seeing. And they had hardened hearts. They weren't sure exactly what they were feeling. What they were feeling. About 10 years ago, I was playing softball in a softball league, a beer league, a bunch of guys. And I remember hitting the ball and running the bases and scoring a run. I slide into home and I'm, I'm, I'm the man. And I go back to the dugout and I'm high-fiving and I sit down on the bench. And I'm sitting there for a few minutes and I lean over to the guy next to me and I said, I, I can't catch my breath. Like I'm still breathing heavy and my heart, my chest is just pounding in my chest. And he's a fireman sitting next to me. So fireman, like, immediately, right, he just starts to respond. He's like, something's going on. They're calling 911. The ambulance come to the softball field. I'm, like, soaking it up, man. Everybody's like, you know, I'm the center of attention. It's awesome. And they're hooking me up. The paramedics get there, and they're hooking me up to all these wires, and they're cramming aspirin down my throat. Because when, when something appears to be affecting your heart, Nobody messes around, right? They, when they tell you, like, you start to feel numbness or something, it's not like you go to bed and sleep it off. Anything that would indicate a heart problem, you immediately are supposed to respond, right? So they take me to the hospital, come to find out that it was my, that was my swing was so amazing that I had pulled, like, a chest muscle right here, right? <laughs> so it had kind of acted like a heart attack, but really it was just too much muscular strength right up here in the upper body. <laughs> But it was scary because when something messes with your heart, it's scary. As you probably guessed from this story, I'm not a doctor. But this message is not about your physical heart. It's about your other heart. You know, that invisible part of you that philosophers and poets and preachers talk about. It's that thing that got broken in the ninth grade when what's-her-name said she just wanted to be friends. Talking about that part of you that swells up with pride when you see your kids do something great. It's the part of you, that thing in you that gets nostalgic when you hear the Journey tune come on the radio. Whatever your music served as the soundtrack for your senior year in high school. It's the part of you that fills up when your spouse sits down next to you. And the part of you that wants to squeeze the coach's neck when your son sits on the bench the entire game. That's your heart. The heart we're talking about is that mysterious, wonderful, confusing part of you that enables you to love and laugh and fear and wonder and have passion and see things in full color. Full color. But life can be hard on the heart. Life can be hard on the heart. Over time, we've all experienced things that slowly erode our heart's sensitivity. We build walls around it. The pain, disillusionment, disappointment of life has caused many of our hearts to get brittle and get callous. So let me ask you today. How are things with your heart? How are things with your heart? No, really. Not your career, not your family, not your finances. Your heart. Your heart. Chances are... It's been a while since you actually stopped and considered your heart. And I get it. It makes sense. There are bills to pay. There are meals to make, calls to return, to-do list to finish. Someone in the lobby casually says to you, how are things? You just smile. You sigh and you say, fine. It's fine. This is a different question. How is your heart? Really? We look at the disciples and we look at their experience and we, we look at the, they saw healings and they, they, they heard his teachings and their proximity. I mean, they're the closest to Jesus and we wonder, how could their hearts be hard? How could their hearts ever be calloused? And I would respond, 
How could yours? How could, how could mine? I think it all begins with a vision problem that then quickly becomes a heart problem. I think it becomes, a, it becomes a heart problem because it starts with a vision problem, how we see things. Here's what we sometimes see. I think we see it in the disciples and we see it in us. We see things like unplanned situations that begin to harden our heart. You know, the disciples thought they were going for a break and now they're feeding 5,000 people and they're picking up leftovers, right? You're suffering through a divorce or a sickness that was unplanned, weren't expecting. People are making you crazy. They're making you cynical. Our hearts get hard. Maybe it's unmet expectations. When Jesus said, follow me to the disciples, they thought they were following him into some position of power and authority. They thought they were going to be in charge. And now they're out in the middle of the lake and they're bussing tables. For some of you, you thought life was going one way and it took a hard turn. Maybe it's unexplained scenarios that's going on, right? Like the disciples are out in the middle of the lake and Jesus isn't around at all. He's off praying and they're suffering. Right? For some of you, you're living through some confusing life situations. You're sitting here today and you're very confused when you leave this place on where God is. I get it. Some things are going on that just don't make sense. And what happens is that's what you see and so your heart begins to get hard. Maybe it's the uninspired efforts that you're making, right? I mean, they're rowing out in the middle of the lake. Some of you are like, man, I'm rowing. I'm serving every Sunday. I'm in my small group, right? I'm doing this. I'm feeding the homeless. I'm going on trips, right? What happens when we work? What happens to our hands? They get calloused, right? They get calloused. Some of us are, so much are, work, some of us are working so much for God that our hearts are becoming calloused towards God. And we got to be careful about that. Now, I know none of you in here have a hard heart, all right? So this is for the people that aren't here. I want to I, I give you... I want to give you two or three signs of what a hard heart might indicate that you have a hard heart. So you can share this with other people that you're concerned about. All right? Here's the first one. You may have a hard heart if you're indifferent to God and to people. All right? You've, you've kind of stopped caring about God, caring about people. You've heard way too many sermons. You've sang way too many worship songs. You've gone to way too many small groups. You're just like, I'm over it, I'm over it, I'm indifferent. Right? You see people and they're just like, whatever. And you're starting to feel that, right? Time in erodes this awareness of. We begin to see in grays and black and white instead of seeing people in full color and God as well. So that would be a sign. Or secondly, what's supposed to be meaningful has become mechanical. It's just a job, right? Just a, just a neighbor that I know, just a church that I go to. Passion is hard to come by. Or maybe... You assume the worst all the time and not the best. You fill in all the gaps of situations with suspicion, not trust. You're, cynic, you're, you're cynical, you're jaded. If that's you, which I'm sure it's not, but if that's you, you may be experiencing a hard heart. Heart transplants are a marvel of modern medicine. I mean, we've gotten to the point where we don't even think about a heart transplant anymore. It's just become almost normal and natural. But the heart goes way beyond what medicine can explain or understand. I've been reading about it this week, and our heart is more than just a physical pump. It doesn't just circulate blood through the miles of blood vessels every day. The heart actually, we're learning, has a mind of its own. 
Studies suggest that the heart actually secretes its own brain-like hormones and has cellular memory. So a heart transplant is not just physical, it's metaphysical. Heart transplant recipients don't just get a new organ, they receive cellular memory. And in his book, A Man After His Own Heart, Charles Siebert, he shares this reality as he describes an annual banquet that takes place that he attended for transplant recipients in New York City. And he was deeply moved by their appreciation for life. They had soft hearts. They had new hearts. They spoke in, in reverent tones about the second chance that life they had been given. They, they humbly acknowledged their responsibility to honor the donors. Many of them talked also about new desires that accompanied their new hearts. Siebert concluded that transplant recipients don't just receive a new heart right here. They receive this whole new experience, these sensory responses and cravings and habits. He called them the tribe of the transplanted. The tribe of the transplanted. Sounds a lot like something God said through the prophet Ezekiel so long ago. And he said this, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. So when the disciples stood on that grassy hillside, their hearts were not yet transplanted. When the disciples collected leftovers from that miraculous meal, their hearts were not transplanted yet. The disciples were rowing desperately against the wind. Their hearts were not yet Transplanted. The disciples were so focused on the task at hand that they almost missed the miracle right in front of them. Our eyes and our hearts are closely tied together. And if our eyes are the portal to our hearts, then what we see and how we see it and how we process it impacts our heart. So let me ask you again. How's your heart? How's your heart? Here's the idea I want you to go home and ponder when we see with clearer eyes, we live with softer hearts. When we see with clearer eyes, we live with softer hearts. And we have to guard against the ghosts that appear on the water of our hearts. As you and I are straining against the winds of the life that we are living... I'm so tempted to see from a slighted perspective or to see from a frustrated perspective or to see from a selfish perspective or to literally stop seeing at all. Is it possible that our hearts are hard and we've started giving God just a passing glance instead of truly hallowing his name? Maybe, maybe it's possible we've settled for a God who fits into the constraints of our logical left brain like facts about God. Instead of a God who we see as immeasurably more than we can all that we can imagine with our right brain. Is it possible we've set such parameters on God, expectations on our relationship with him, such limits on how God will work and intervene in our lives, that we set up boundaries on how we're going to respond. And in the midst of all of that, our eyes have gotten blurry and our hearts have grown hard. Let me, let me use a funny illustration to, to, to maybe help you understand the difference between a hard heart and a soft heart, right? So you're, you're driving to work, and you're on the 215, and you're like late, right? So you're driving, and you're going a little fast, and there's cars all around you. And suddenly the cars in front of you, one of them changes lanes, and he doesn't see the other guy. And they bump into each other, and one spins out, and he runs into the, he, he runs into the concrete barrier, and, and there's chaos everywhere. And you pull your car over. 
and you run up to the car, and the airbags have blown out, and there's somebody, there's a child in the back seat going to school, and you're, you're asking, are you okay, are you okay, and you're calling 911, and you're waving traffic around, and you're making sure everybody's okay. That's, that's soft heart, right? You watch this happen. Now, if you're two miles back in the traffic jam, and you're like, what is happening, Right? Idiot drivers, man. Can no one drive anymore, right? Can they just clear this wreck off to the side so that I can get where I'm going, right? Hard heart. And the difference isn't because you're a bad person. Listen. The difference is because one part of you saw the wreck happen, right? You experienced, you saw with your eyes in full color this all go down and your concern and your heart is soft and you care. The other part of you is two mile back. You didn't see any of it. You don't care. You're indifferent. And you just want them to get out of the way so you can go on with your day. Because how we see things, when it's in living color, affects our hearts. Jesus gave the greatest command when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And to love God with all your heart means having a heart that breaks for the things that break the heart of God. And loving God with all your soul means we, are, we respond fully to that breaking that happens. So does your heart still break for the things that break the heart of God? If you're a follower of Christ, does your heart still break? Because when the breaking stops, the hardening begins. Time in erodes awareness of. And some of us, it's been a long time. And maybe we just need to be reminded of what that looks like when our hearts break. My wife and I actually moved to Vegas 25 years ago. Crazy. Like a resident, right? You lived here 25 years. You're like a native. And we moved to Vegas. We were pastoring students in, um, at a small church in the north part of town. And we walked in the first day and there were eight kids sitting in a closet. Three of them were pastor's kids. They didn't want to be there. right? And my heart was not broken as a, as a recent college graduate ready to get into ministry. My heart wasn't breaking to babysit kids. So after about two or three weeks of that, I'm like, this isn't working for me at all. So I called my dad. My dad wasn't a pastor. He wasn't like a motivational speaker or a child psychologist, none of that. He was a concrete finisher. And I called my dad. I said, Dad, I need you to come to Vegas. He lived in Arizona. I need you to drive up in the next week or two. And he said, okay. He said, we're going to pour a basketball court. You know, okay. So two weeks later on a Saturday, he comes up, and I'd already purchased the, the pole and the hoop, and we laid out the basketball court. I can't even remember if I asked permission or not. <laughs> but um, we laid out the basketball court, and they backed up the ready-made truck, and we poured this half court. And before the sun went down, I stuck the basketball hoop in the ground with the backboard. It was awesome. And it's still there. There it is. Okay? And the next, next day I'm in the office, and I hear the basketball bouncing. And I look out, and there's five or six kids from the neighborhood that came over. Because when you have a basketball court, you draw people. I got out of my office quick, and I went over there, and I started meeting these kids. One of them was named was George. And George and these kids lived across the street. And they, you know, it was a rough neighborhood, man. And their families were doing the best they could, but there wasn't any Christian background there. And they were just there to shoot baskets. And George used some very colorful language. It was awesome. And he... he <laughs> He was just glad to be there. And so I built a relationship with George and these other guys. And five kids turned into 50 kids. And 50 kids turned into a couple hundred kids. But it, it, here's the deal. It was that court that allowed those kids to come and to be part of that and to meet, to meet Christ. 
Well, George graduated, one of those early kids, and we lost touch. Probably 15, 18 years, we, hadn't, we lost touch, just life and all of that. And a few months ago, I get this Facebook message from somebody who says, George had a stroke. And at this point, George is like 35 years old. He had a stroke. And uh, so I, I message him, and I come to find out that he's been in the hospital for nine months. And he just got home, and he still can't get out of bed. He's literally confined to his bed. 35 years old, his whole right side doesn't work. He can't go to work. He's confined to bed. I said to him, George, I said, George, listen, when you can get out of bed, we're having lunch. Right? He's like, okay. And I could just tell he was fired up. And like last week, I get this text. Hey, I'm out of bed. I'm mobile. When's lunch? Right? Right? And so, so we go to lunch. And I'm sitting there with George at lunch downtown. And he's still in his wheelchair, his motorized wheelchair, and I'm sitting across from him and we're talking. But I'm thinking about that basketball court. Because here's the deal. The basketball court, you're like, oh, Lee, that's... No, 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 no. Here's what was important. I was willing to put the court in. That I was seeing what God was seeing through colored eyes, and I was willing to do that. And I was thinking, sitting there with George, am I still willing to do that? Is my heart still soft enough? Would I still be willing to do whatever it takes to see what breaks the heart of God and to step into that and to try to meet those needs and to bring people closer to him and to all those things? And I, I had to ask myself those hard questions, right? Because when we become unwilling over time, we quickly become unable, right? The more unwilling you are, pretty soon it eventually becomes inability, like our hearts just can't even get soft anymore. So where are you at on that? Where are you at on that? Because when we see with clear eyes, we live with softer hearts. We live with softer hearts. Let's think about us and what that means for you and I as a church. Because a church can get hard as well, right? We have a personality of our own. And I want us to be willing again. Open our eyes again to see with, with fresh eyes. Maybe you're in the boat and you're grinding, man. You barely got in here today. You've forgotten about what you experienced with God. Maybe the bread and the fishes are so yesterday for you, right? I want you to think back about when your eyes saw in full color. Think about that sermon you heard when you sat over here and everybody left and you just sat there and you just were processing like what God was saying to you. Think about that song that you heard. That time when you had to pull over to the side of the road and you just had to finish listening to the song. And maybe you're just even tears were welling up and God was doing something in your gut. And you were all by yourself and it was like you could see things in full color. Think about that trip you took to that area, that culture you'd never been to. You went around the world and you met people who were serving Jesus. And all of a sudden it was like the vivid colors of grace were so bright you were almost blinded. Remember that? Remember how willing you were to experience that? we got to start seeing with those fresh eyes again. This week we went to the Pinecrest campus where the Southeast campus is meeting. We took our whole staff over there on Thursday morning. And we're all circling up in the gymnasium where they're going to meet. And we're praying. It's awesome, right? There's kids outside. They don't know what's going on. We're just praying. And then Shane said, let's get in groups. Let's get in groups of three or four. And we're just going to pray in little pods all over the, the room. And so I'm like, cool. So I get in a group and I'm next to Aaron. Aaron Hoffman, he's the campus pastor out at Southeast campus. Aaron's fired up. And so I'm holding hands with Aaron, and he starts praying. 
And he's praying. He's like, I pray for Luis. He's the custodian here at the school, and Luis has got marital problems. And I'm just praying that God. And I pray for, he named a child. He said, this child is in an abusive home. And I pray for the biology teacher, and he named him. And he said, I pray for this family that I met, came across. And I'm just sitting there going, I suck. I suck so much. I suck. Because Aaron's just praying with, like, colored glasses, right? He's seeing the heart that breaks for God, the same things that breaks God. And he's praying for these people by name, real people, real lives. He's seeing everything, and he's so willing, so willing. And I thought, God, work on me. Work on me. But what's awesome is it's not too late. We can trust again. We can hope again. We can be willing again. We can see again, right? We can see again all of us in this place. And because of that, we can have softer hearts. You know, they've devised these glasses now that people that are colorblind can see and they can wear. And all of a sudden, they can see color again. They can see the things they've never seen. Maybe for us, some of us have been around a long time and we've had a lot of time in. We need to slip those spiritual glasses back on. Okay? We need to see the way God sees things. We need to see how God sees things. So that our hearts will not be hard, but that our hearts will be soft. Father, we just pray right now in this place. We pray for our hearts, the condition of our eyes that leads to the condition of our hearts. God, I just pray that we would begin to see again as you see. We pray, God, that you would motivate us as a church to continue to continue to be passionate about having a heart for you. We pray for those in this room that are listening to this. Those that are watching that are thinking, my heart is hard, my heart is hard. I pray that they would have the willingness to see again. That their hearts and their prayers to you would be, God, my heart is broken, it's crusty, it's calloused. Make it fresh, make it soft again. God, that's our prayer. Help us to see things in vivid color again. God, we ask this in your name.